0: I think one of the things that we often do is think of ourselves as individuals and, like, well, you know, and and see the bubble in which we live as the world in which we have uh, some agency. But if we can partner with others and see ourselves in connection and in community with others who are working towards similar goals but differently positioned within the system, then there's the potential for more collaborative action, even on the structural change
1: side. I'm delighted that Dr. Janet Newbury has joined me to focus on her chapter in the SAGE Handbook. Her chapter is entitled, Inclusion and Community Building, with the subtitle, Profoundly Particular and I'm excited to hear Janet talk about her research and practice in this domain of community building. This season of Positivity Strategists is an exciting collaboration with the Taos Institute. Our topic is Constructionist Practices as Social Innovation. Our special guests are Taos Institute Associates who've contributed chapters to the Sage Handbook of Social Constructionist Practice. And I'm your host, Robin Stratton Burkessel. Janet, a warm welcome to you. Thank you. And I'd like to say a couple of words as I've been digging into some of your um, most impressive work and your personal history. (laughs) (laughs) So, Janet, um, you teach and conduct research in the School of Child and Youth Care at the University of Victoria which is located in a beautiful part of the world, and that's British Columbia in Canada. That's right. Yeah, and you're also an adjunct adjunct associate professor in the Faculty of Graduate Studies. So where are you actually living at the moment? Yes, I don't live in Victoria. I live on
0: Klaaman Territory, which is... The northern part of the Sunshine Coast, north of Vancouver, BC, so in order to get to Victoria where the university is, there's a ferry, which is about an hour and a half, and
1: then about a three-hour drive. Whoa, that's some distance. (laughs) Uh, Do you have a a residence in Victoria if you have to
0: stay over (laughs) or something? No, I often teach uh, five-day intensives. Mm. And when I go down to teach those, I have a, a group of amazing friends and I sort of rotate among them to stay with different people.
1: That's great for community building. It is indeed. <laughs> That's lovely. Yeah. Um, so I was asking that question about where you're currently living because as I was looking into your history, it was quite thrilling. Um, <laughs> You've done some traveling in your life, girl. I did, yes. (laughs) You've crisscrossed Canada, studying in different colleges and universities, earning degrees and gaining work and life experience. I mean, we could have a whole show on this. (laughs) Um, You taught English in Japan, right? You worked at a girl's home and school in Jamaica and volunteered at an orphanage in Vietnam, that's right. Whoa. <laughs> you so did do a bit of research. <laughs> I. It's so exciting. That is some rich personal history. So I'm curious, does any of that or all of that have some tie-in to what you're doing with community building?
0: Absolutely. Oh, my God. I, I'm not sure how to make, like, a direct causal link between any of it, but all of it is part of um, – you know, I learned different things in each of those experiences about my place in the world, and I think I hopefully gained some humility through it, and that definitely informs the way I walk in this community, for sure.
1: Mm. And then the focus um, that's in the, in the chapter that you write is on community building among Indigenous populations in British Columbia. So how did, how did you move into that arena yeah,
0: well it's interesting that you interpreted it that way because I wasn't necessarily writing specific to um working in indigenous communities. It's just that the only perspective I can write from is my own mm-hmm. and currently this is where I live and these are, you know, this is the community I'm in. Um so that the the concrete examples I've offered in the chapter particularly because I've tried to um I mean, the chapter primarily focuses on questions that I start with and then sources of guidance that guide me, you know, in how to navigate those questions. And most of the sources of guidance that I currently have are my Indigenous friends and colleagues because these are the contexts in which I'm finding myself. So um, at the beginning of the chapter, I invite readers to sort of take the questions and the guidance um, in... In their own ways, because we're all positioned differently in our communities, and so I don't hope, I don't wish to generalize. I'm just speaking from my perspective.
1: Mm. Yeah, I think it's great that you make that clear, and it's a wonderful reminder that really, it's the only perspective we can take is our uh-huh. own perspective, right? Um, and I find the title of your chapter is most intriguing: inclusion and community building. We think mm. we know what that is, and then there's the profoundly particular tagline or um, subtitle. I think that it gives us a clue about your specific area of interest and research on this topic of inclusion and community building, but I'm not sure. So I would like to invite you to talk about why you have added this, these two words profoundly particular.
0: Um, I'm interested in what you think the clue is, but I'll answer your question. <laughs> um, I am somebody who, you know, I have, white skin, I speak English, I'm university educated. um, And I think I'm terrified of people in my position generalizing and thinking that we can speak in any kind of universal terms around community and what that means and what inclusion might look like. So I, you know, I feel cautious even having this conversation with you. Um, But the reason I'm doing it is because I have been told again and again, and I really believe that it is is up to people in my position to interrogate the systems we currently live in and are privileged by and to speak to it. Um, So I want to have these conversations. I think they're important to have. I think it's important for me not to be silent, but also not to presume my way of moving in the world is your way, for example, or um, you know, should be somehow generalized for other people. So that's why I have the subtitle Profoundly Particular. Mm -hmm. You know, it depends on the moment in time, um, the context, the political, cultural, economic realities we're moving in, the
1: Mm -hmm. body
0: we move in, the power dynamics Mm -hmm. at play, all of those things will determine you know, we'll we'll play a role in what inclusion and community building might look like.
1: Yeah, thank you, yeah. So um, as I read your chapter and and some of the other um, articles in order to get ready for our conversation, Janet, I get the impression that you've done um, an extraordinary amount of research into inclusion and community building. And given the community where you are now located, you've sat at the feet of some very wise elders Perhaps Mm -hmm. not only in this community, but metaphorically you've also sat at the feet of other wise elders in different kinds of communities. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, we hear the term community building and many of us think we know what that is until we do it and it depends where we are and what context. But what came through reading of your experience and your perspective is that you show how inclusive community building is an honor and a privilege, and it comes with massive responsibility and it's not easy. Uh I would love for you to share some of your high point stories, meaning, you know, what have been some of the most rewarding and or challenging aspects of your participation in community building? Um, and then I'll come back to the massive responsibility and the not easy part in a sec. But if, if you can just think back to some of your past experiences, you know, what's mm-hmm. a story you might have where it's been really uplifting and you've seen things that come to life that are so important to you and to the community?
0: I love this question. Um, how do I share stories that like I have the right to share, you know? like Mm -hmm. some of the most poignant moments I'm not going to share. So I'm just thinking. So your question is, can you repeat the question just so I don't go off in the wrong direction? Yeah,
1: absolutely. Um, So it's in the context of you show how inclusive community building is an honor and a privilege, and it comes with massive responsibility and it's not easy. Um, And so my invitation is if you would share um a high point or a particular story of what has been some of the most rewarding and or challenging aspects of your participation in community building that you've been part of. Mm-hmm. Irrespective of your role. Mm-hmm. Well
0: yeah I mean definitely the most challenging you know it's in the um chapter, I speak to the fact, well, the importance of structuring safety.
1: Mm-hmm. And in
0: order to structure safety, you need to know something about the potential, like the the context in which the people you're inviting are coming from, you need to know their something about their experience. So you can anticipate what might be unsafe for them. And you can do the best that you can do to avoid re-traumatizing someone, for example. And so the best people, the people who are most, who are best positioned to do that are people from within the community. Mm -hmm. Um, And so one of the most challenging things for me has been figuring out when it is useful for me to show up and when it is useful for me to step back and when it is useful for me to, um, you know, bring, create, create some space or bring someone along with me. Um, so there's different ways of engaging. And so one of the challenges for sure is for me to discern and seek guidance about when and how to show up. Um, in terms of what's been the most meaningful, I feel like I could talk for a year. <laughs> um, we, my husband and I have been participating in some tribal journeys like canoe, canoeing that are really, I'm not going to go into detail about it, um, in, but th- it's, a, it's a revitalization of really important cultural practices from this territory and through that, you know, really meaningful relationships have emerged um, that, you know, the, the lines between professional and pro- personal relationships are not necessarily distinct when you're working deeply in a community context we have a canoe family, you know, the canoe family saying at our wedding and there's, you know, there's a lot of um, important building each other up that happens through the informal relationships that have come through this practice together over a number of years. Um, So that's been something that's been extremely meaningful in my life and hard to articulate in a podcast without disclosing a whole bunch of You know, intimate and private things. So I think I might leave it there.
1: Yeah. No, well, thank you for going there. But I think um how you've how you're responding I think um indicates that it's really important to talk about the two questions that underpin your research and practice. Okay. (laughs) Because um, you know, I read that your commitment is to pursue just and accountable forms of community building. So that's uh-huh. you know that's what you're committed to. It's it, you want just and accountable forms of community building, uh-huh. and what I'm reading into that, Janet, is that the two questions underpin your research and practices. You know how is power socially constructed? That's uh-huh. one question, and the second question that you um, you you develop um, in your in your chapter is number two: the role what is the role of embodiment in this work? Uh And that is just so gorgeous to even consider, you know, the role of embodiment. And so you do have a story there where you talk about that. So maybe you could talk to both of those questions that you could, um, you Uh know, how is power socially constructed and, and what you're finding there and how you deal with that. And then the other one about the embodiment.
0: Yeah, I think oftentimes when community building and practices of inclusion are discussed, they're talked about in a way that's like with the best case scenario in mind. Like I'm gonna develop this amazing program in the community and invite everyone will be invited to come equally and whoever shows up are the right people. Um, But if we consider power dynamics, then maybe the invitation needs to look different for different people. Maybe more work needs to be done to make sure everybody knows they are invited. Um, a small example from a current project I'm working on is uh, we're doing this child care planning project within the region. My friend Marlene and I are co-developing it or yeah, leading it. And in what I loved about the way this this project was even funded was there was just as much money, like fifty percent of the budget was for community engagement, and that meant we could pay a fair wage for child minders so like mm-hmm. you know whenever we have a focus group or we have a parent and guardian um, advisory committee, we can pay for really good food, we can give the advisory committee an, a good honorarium for their time um, all of these things if if people want to participate in the events or focus groups or advisory group um, and they have other barriers that might, you know, transportation, for example, there's a budget to support that kind of inclusion. And so I think attending to power dynamics Mm. means it's not just about, you know, it's like the difference between equity and equality, (laughs) like not treating everybody the same, but recognizing that everyone's not the same and, and maybe different kinds of energy needs to go in. Mm-hmm. um when we're relating wh- when we really want to have like diverse co- voices at the table for example um so that's an example of the the question about how power is socially constructed um and embodiment is such a big one for me i think because we so we i'm saying the we in terms of social constructionism and maybe even academia in general mm-hmm. um, talk about ideas you know, as if somehow they are disembodied. Um, So recognizing, you know, not being colorblind or genderblind, you know, like thinking about the language we use, but also the places where we meet, you know, are they accessible? Like all kinds of things like that. Thinking about embodiment and how we read each other, how power is read based on age or gender or, you know, the color of our skin and all the language we speak, for example recognizing embodiment in those ways is is there for me but also the other thing is around embodiment like the potential of uh working in embodied ways so not just like it's not just the words we use that matter it's also um the way we are physically coming together so um in the or in the chapter i speak to the way um Kus and PL, one of the people that i consider a mentor of mine mm-hmm. um she embodies her traditional teachings so it's not that she's like necessarily speaking them or teaching them to people verbally or through a workshop she's living them it's in her body right so and and through experiencing things together we can socially construct a new world, (laughs) you know, like not just talking about stuff, but actually, actually being in something and feeling the comfort or discomfort of that. So really the, you know, and breath, even breath, um, the practice of being in a group of people um, and, you know, singing or drumming or dancing, you know, like in unison together and breathing together. Like what are, what are the healing, what is the healing potential? What is the therapeutic potential Mm. of things beyond the ideas we bring to this work? So I think that's the other part or another part of the embodiment question. It's mostly, these are questions. Like I'm very curious about all of this. Um, You know, how can we think differently about our work and move differently in it? So, that we can move towards what you just described as um, just and accountable mm. ways of doing community work. So, and the accountable part is also really important. Um, we're gonna, we, we don't live in a context or in a world in which power dynamics are balanced. They're not balanced. And so, we're going to misstep, we're going to transgress. What do we do when that happens? From whom do we seek guidance? To whom are we accountable? How do we make visible our transgressions so that we can do whatever repair is needed? And I think that also often gets overlooked. But I think, I mean, if anything, throughout this chapter, what I'm talking about is like the the play, the sites of tension and conflict and potential risk that occur in, and attending to those sites when we're doing community building so that we can be at least as responsible and responsive and informed as we can be.
1: So I'm thinking, you know, in terms of the embodiment piece, it it's moving from um, sensing that we have the ideas and it's intellectual and it's, you know, it's all in the head, but even the heart and the breath work and even, you know, what about other um, objects Mm-hmm. in in the vicinity, like you know honoring um, the gifts of nature, or you know you or there's this practice that you talk about the blanket exercise, and you mentioned um, is it kusin Pili?, PL. Um, PL, sorry, yes, and how she um, uses the the cedar um, mm-hmm. tradition, you know, the cedar brushing. Mm-hmm. Um, so is that, you know to me, that's like an honoring. And mm-hmm. it's, it's moving outside the head, but is honoring other traditions that come from physical practices. Um, yeah. Yeah. And,
0: and um, so Kusin Piel and Zoe Ludzki, I reference both of them in the chapter and they, they facilitate the blanket exercise with others. Um I actually, in following on this conversation of embodiment, they came to Victoria one time a couple of years ago to do the blanket exercise with my class. And it was so interesting. Some of the students in that class, it was a master's level class. And some of them I had also taught in their undergrad. And this, I received an email after it from one of the students saying of her entire university experience, this was the most significant learning and i think i mean it was 2 hours of their time but it was embodied so throughout the blanket exercise there are blankets on the floor and people are standing on the blankets and 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 while a script is being read we have to physically move and the blankets shift as you know territorial lines are drawn throughout history and things like that and so you feel in your body something different you know she through that exercise that student didn't necessarily learn new information but she embodied it in a different way so I think that's a good example
1: yeah yes indeed research and practices all intertwined and the Taos Institute our collaborator for the season offers conferences and work The Taos Institute is a nonprofit educational organization. Our mission
0: is to bring together scholars and practitioners as they explore the social construction of reason, knowledge and human values and their applications. If you wanna learn more about our work in social constructionism, just visit us at taosinstitute.net.
1: And back to our guest, Dr. Janet Newbury, on the subject that ideas are just that, ideas. So I'm going to pivot a little bit, and could you say say something about um, how social constructionist practice shows up most gracefully for you? <laughs> what, does that, what does that, you know, what does that mean? You, what does it enabled you to do?
0: Well, yeah, I think any, any set of ideas can be used dogmatically. Um, Social constructionism is not even a word or a phrase I would use in my community, but it's part of my own worldview and it enables me, I mean, yeah, it enables me to enter a situation with some attunement, I hope. (laughs) <laughs> uh mm-hmm. because because social constructionism is in part around understanding meanings can vary mm-hmm. depending on context, then in order to read a situation, there are a lot of things you have to be attuned to if that's what you're coming in believing, right?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So importantly, I don't think I mean, I really strongly believe it's important not to say social constructionism is the right way to think or the right way to move through the world. Um, It's, it's just a set of ideas that's been useful for me. Mm -hmm. Um, But there are, you know, people who have a much, maybe a less fluid interpretation of meaning. And I think as a social constructionist, if I would call myself that, then it's important for me to be respectful of that, right? Like not to try to convince someone that meaning is fluid and what they believe to be true is not, you know, true. I would never do that. <laughs> so it's, I, I I like the word graceful that you used. Um, I think it's a challenge to use any any set of ideas <laughs> gracefully because <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> we tend to get attached to them. <laughs> mm-hmm. But, yeah, it's one that enables me to, I think, mm-hmm. be curious and hopefully observant and yeah. responsive.
1: Yeah. And I think you mentioned, or maybe I was imagining because I was hearing it through <laughs> your words, fluid. I think there's a fluidity there that some, for me. And I don't know if that was what I was interpreting as I was listening to you. Yeah, I did say fluid. You did say fluid. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Oh, damn. I was hoping I was making it up of myself. <laughs> that's great. Um, so another one, I mean, have you referred to, um, safety earlier, I'm jumping all over the place here, but that's just been coming back to me now. So in structuring safety, perhaps that goes back to, you know, your two, two key questions that, um, you know, your paper is around or your chapters around, uh-huh. um, so, I'm wondering, you know safety then would be a vital component of an inclusive community building practice, right? Mm-hmm. So, and that so, tell you a little bit about how you might organize around ensuring there is safety and for whom mm-hmm. and how you do that, yeah, and for I think, what? you know, not only for whom but for what?
0: yeah, for me, so i I. Th- refer a lot to Dr. Vicki Reynolds' ideas when I think about safety. She never speaks about safety as, you know, um absolute. like it's either safe or unsafe, but rather, safety is constantly in negotiation. Safety can be compromised in a moment, right? so if if I'm at a gathering, I can feel great, and then someone says something, and suddenly, I don't feel safe anymore. <laughs> so, you know, what happens then? How do I respond? And so, structuring safety becomes the work really almost entirely. And I, um, you know, I teach a group facilitation course on campus and, and much of the time is spent, you know, negotiating, figuring out how to negotiate safety, experimenting with that. Um, In the example that I used in the chapter, it came, came around that blanket exercise which you just
1: mentioned yes that's why I'm thinking about it Mm.
0: yeah and a lot of it you know one of the things is not presuming um like attuning like as I said earlier attuning to the places where people might feel unsafe and not presuming safety at the start so even leading in even when the invitation is being extended how can we begin to cultivate a sense of safety for potential participants? So an example, like sometimes we can be exclusive or silence people without even recognizing it. Mm. Um, So this childcare planning project I'm involved with, when we were making public our invitations to participate in, you know, surveys and focus groups and advisory committees, we wanted to be really gender inclusive, recognizing that, um, childcare. Lots of people do childcare, um, and it's always—it's not always parents either, you know. So being inclusive of of other childcare providers. Um, so even the language that we use when extending an invitation can be the beginning steps of um, cultivating some safety. Um, being super transparent about what people might expect. And also validating the potential that people might not feel safe and seeking their input about what would help facilitate that for them. But recognizing, and this is where the power dynamics part comes in, I think we sometimes think if we ask the question and people do or don't answer, then we have our answer. But people don't always feel safe to answer. (laughs) So -hmm. that's the challenge. (laughs) That's Mm -hmm. one of the challenges, right? How do we create an environment in which people people um, can give us the information that we need in a way that makes sense for them, not in a way that is easy and convenient for us. Yeah. And so, you know, that can take time. It can also require thinking about who your co-facilitators are, who you're, who, who's in the room, you know, um, so that people can see themselves reflected back. There's so many things, you know, exactly. where's the physical place? Is it, is it requiring someone to step outside of their comfort zone just to come to like, are you doing it in a city hall or something like that, or in a community center? You know, things, things like the physical space, transportation, attending to various needs that people might have, um, and validating feelings that could come up. So, so letting people know upfront where some um, lack of safety could surface and negotiating before it happens, how that might be responded to. So, so anything that helps to build transparency and trust throughout and then, and then, you know, attending throughout to things beyond the verbal um, so that you can be responsive if someone is starting to feel their safety is compromised.
1: Yeah. Yes. Um, what, What about building a sense of belonging Mhm. Um, is that something that's articulated or
0: Yeah, I mean, I think and this is this sort of comes back to some of the things we were discussing earlier. Um, the best, you know, I I'm referring again to the blanket exercise because it might be easier to just have one example, but mm. in that case, so Kusen PL and Zoe Ludsky were inviting people to participate in the blanket exercise through um an article in the community newsletter. And in order to create a sense of belonging, it was very helpful that Cousin actually already belongs to that community. Mm -hmm. So she's, you know, people can see that she, she identified her, her family and how she's located within that community. And then she also identified Mm -hmm. the blanket exercise in the context of other work that's been going on over years and years and generations in that community. And so she, she, cultivated a sense of belonging and she was very well positioned to do that I would have to recognize that I am not well positioned to do that right Mm so so some of the question around power dynamics is like um if I am interested in disrupting power dynamics that privilege certain people over others, then that means if I'm one of the people who's currently privileged by current systems, I have to be willing to recognize that maybe my role is not front and center in community building work, you know. So maybe my role is actually to step back or like go pick up the catering or something like
1: that. Mm -hmm. So being just so sensitive to those power dynamics, as you say, but and the the relational process Mm -hmm. that I think social construction allows us to to become far more sensitive to and aware of and build into our daily interactions with people. So I'm interested to ask you this one, Janet. How do you separate research and practice or do you separate research and practice?
0: I don't really. I like that question. (laughs) Um, But a lot of the research I'm involved with right now, um, most of it is here locally, not all of it. But every project I'm involved with is a relational community building project, I think. Mm -hmm. And everything that we've been discussing has to come into play. Um, Yeah. I don't separate I don't separate research from practice and I don't really separate research and practice from just life it's sort of they're all really intertwined
1: (laughs) Mm. yes indeed research and practices all intertwined and the Taos Institute our collaborator for the season offers conferences and workshops so let's hear from Dawn Dole the executive director The Taos Institute, a nonprofit educational organization, sponsors and hosts global conferences focused on themes related to social construction in education, healthcare, community, therapy, and organizational change. To learn about the Institute's upcoming conferences, visit taosinstitute.net slash taos conferences. It's well worth your while to check out the Taos website. There are so many fantastic resources you can find there. And now back to Janet Newberry. So I have a little exercise for you. I'd like you to complete the sentence (laughs) based on what you just said. And the sentence is, um, you know, building on social construction and building on the practice and the research and the relational aspects of it. So how might you complete this? The social innovation we most need for the work in inclusive community building is?
0: Oh, I mean, truthfully, the first word that came to my mind was decolonization, like structural change, real, really deep structural change. Keep talking. Oh, um, well, it's...
1: Is this the massive responsibility and the not easy part? I guess so. (laughs) Yeah, I mean,
0: we can't just tweak existing systems and think that we will have justice and accountability because these systems are not just or accountable. And um, what I see right now in my field, child and youth care, is a lot of people feeling what is described as burnout Mm -hmm. because they have an ethic, um an ethic of of justice and they find themselves working in roles and positions that move away from justice in some senses and so there's this um you know in order to be people you know often feel like in order to be part of change you have to be part of The systems that currently exist but then once you find yourself in them you sometimes feel like you are perpetuating something that you don't believe in and Mm. we can have a lot of really good-hearted people um, aspiring for more equitable social conditions but feeling their hands tied because the problems are a little bit deeper than programming alone or practices alone. But I will say, I don't think it's separate. Like I see the, um, the potential for structural change comes with people. I I see hope actually when I think, you know, see students year after year um, moving into the field with you know, deep commitments towards some kinds of structural change and recognizing their place as part of that system. I think one of the things that we often do is think of ourselves as individuals and like, well, you know, and, and see the bubble in which we live as the world in which we have uh, some agency. But if we can partner with others and see ourselves in connection and in community with others who are working towards similar goals, but differently positioned within the system, then there's the potential for more collaborative action, even on the structural change side. So, um, you know, if I have certain gifts and you have certain other gifts, then it doesn't make sense for me to try to do the things you're great at. It makes sense for me to communicate with you and learn from you and work with you so that our gifts can actually work together. So I think the one word I started my answer with was decolonization, but I think one of the roots to get there is, you know, some of what I do see happening in the world today, which is organizing and communicating outside of silos and recognizing cross-disciplinary partnerships as super useful, um, and empowering actually for a lot of people so I guess that's where my mind goes
1: (laughs) that's wonderful so are you seeing more of that I mean you're looking for that obviously you know so your reticular activating system kicks in Mm -hmm. and um, you know what you're focusing on those things and you're studying those things so um, do you get a sense that that you know you mentioned the word hope Mm -hmm. do you actually have a sense that that is happening more and more In the work that you're doing and the people that you're working with and being with? Yeah, I've actually heard myself
0: say in the last couple of months, like, I feel for the first time in my career, like in this particular place where I live with, you know, we have certain political conditions at play at the moment and children and families are there, there is some political energy going into supporting children and families structurally. So uh, I haven't seen that before in terms of, so this child care planning project I'm involved with, it's a 10 year plan in all, like I've never heard of that before. <laughs> and it's a really interesting partnership among the three local governments. So the Klaaman Nation, the Kothet Regional District and the Pal- city of Powell River, the three local governments um, have actually hired a social planner whose mandate is early years, poverty reduction, housing, and social cohesion. So that is like a full-time city staff. That's unheard of. That's that's pretty impressive. (laughs) And, And that person is informed by an advisory committee, and that advisory committee is comprised of people who, in part, Uh, is comprised of people who represent grassroots organizations. So the people who've actually been doing the work on the ground forever. And so um, with this child care planning project, for instance, there is a group of people in the community called, who've called themselves the early years planning table, who've been steadfastly working towards supporting children and families for such a long time. And now creative partnerships are beginning to happen And resources are finding their way in and, and plans are being made for 10 years. And so it's pretty, it's pretty cool. And we have the support of our, um, our provincial elected leader as well, and as well as our federal representatives. So, you know, these people have actually been at our parent advisory committees even. So it's, it's, um, yeah, there are places, there are certainly places where I do feel hope right now,
1: (laughs) not everywhere. Yeah, but that's a pretty great story, you know, to um, even when you were talking about the funding that was available for um, some childcare in one of your earlier stories. Yeah. I thought that was pretty cool. I mean, and why should it be? I mean, you know I'm saying? Why would I be excited and impressed by that? But this is really good. I guess it's relative to, you know, what's come before. So that is a sign of. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. And I
0: mean, if, if childcare is not offered, who doesn't make it to the table, right? We, we can answer that question pretty easily. Sure. So the, uh, another sort of exciting um, ripple of this is within the last week, I've had two different organizations ask me how we organized our childcare because they're going to be running meetings and they'd like to offer the same. So it's, it's also sort of created a little light bulb maybe for people who've seen it and they're
1: like, oh, we could do that. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. And all the cross fertilization and cross pollination that's going on with all these, you know, different groups coming together to support each mm-hmm. other and the, this project of 10 year project that's awesome. So that's something I'm sure you're going to be writing about, right? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's so yeah. lovely. I'm glad you I'm glad you mentioned that. So as we close out Janet, I just wondered is there anything else that you would love to share that I I've failed to um or neglected to bring up or it occurred to you as I've been interjecting here and there. Anything else you'd like to say?
0: Um, I guess the only thing that really comes to mind is I would like to say, you know, thank you to the particular people who gave me permission to share their stories and what I have been learning from them personally in this chapter. Um, Because, you know, again, going back to the power dynamics thing, I really struggle with what what is okay for me to say publicly and what isn't. And so um, just, you know, sharing the draft chapter and asking permission and, and being told that, yes, it's important to speak to these things um, from my positionality and center these voices. So mm. I just am really grateful that they have given me permission to speak to these things that I care so deeply about.
1: That's beautiful. So, Janet, anything that is um, online is um, publicly available because if people want to find out more about the work that you're doing, uh, I'd like to, you know, post or paste some of those links into the, um, you know, the write-up from our interview here. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I'd invite people to go to the show notes page for this episode, which they can go to at positivitystrategist.com slash podcast. And they can access any resources that you're willing to share. Mm-hmm. That's okay with you, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And this um childcare
0: planning project is is not we've been using a, a website called ParticipatePR.ca. Oh, I and, found
1: that. Yes. Oh, you yes. did? Okay. Yes. So the
0: report eventually will be <laughs> up there, but not until the end of March. So um
1: that Great. will be
0: that will be publicly available, I'm pretty yeah. sure.
1: Well, that's wonderful. Okay, so there are resources for people to be able to find out more. So Janet, I want to say thank you so much for you know what you've shared today, for the chapter that you've written, and for all the amazing work that you're doing. Well, so thank, thank you th- to you too. <laughs> okay. So thanks again for being a guest on the show today. My pleasure. Thanks for the opportunity. Okay. Janet's chapter in the SAGE handbook is entitled Inclusion and Community Building, Profoundly Particular. So please join us next time when my guest is Dr. John Winslade and he'll be talking to me on the topic of narrative mediation. Thank you for your listening, your continued listening and for your support. And I'm Robin Stratton-Burkessel in collaboration with the Taos Institute.